Tonight we are going to uh, turn back to our study, brief study, of uh, the church in Ephesus. And you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at this. Um, we talked about the beginning of the church. I'm not going to rehash that, but how the church had begun with, uh, of course, some very capable, able teachers, Paul, Apollos, perhaps, uh, certainly at one point, um, Aquila, Priscilla. So began with that, went through some troublesome times, but very strong church. And tonight what we will see is the church basically reaping the benefits of the advantages they've had, certainly taking advantage of those, and becoming a well-established church, a strong church. And so we want to look at that. I don't know if we have visitors in the midst, but if you're here, we welcome you, and I hope you want to come back and be with us as we turn to the Bible and we study about this church. We're talking this year about Jesus building his church. And in a microcosm, the church at Ephesus, I think in many respects, at least in the beginning, is what the Lord wanted to see. He wanted to see a church established, and an apostle goes there, he teaches, um, it flourishes, it has the order and so forth that we will talk about. The organization is a term I'll use. We haven't really talked about that on Sunday morning, but I will, and many of you know and understand perfectly what I'm saying in that. It has all of that. So when we look at the church at Ephesus, just to reiterate very briefly, remember Paul had started out by spending maybe about three months in the synagogue. You can see this in Acts 19, um, where he was disputing and debating and really arguing for and persuading people of things regarding the kingdom or the church of God. We see that about verse 8 or so of Acts 19. He was successful to a degree, at least even among the Jews. Verses 9 and 10 show you that some did believe. But most did not, and he turned his attention to the Gentiles in the area, and he had great success with them. And so many people are converted, not just in Ephesus, but in the greater province of Asia Minor, and we certainly can see that. We see that school of Tyrannus and all of that kind of thing. I'd like for you, if you will, to turn with me to um, Acts 19. And let's pick up in a part where we didn't read. But let's pick up in Acts 19, down about verse 10, and let's read. And just notice some of the work being done here. So Acts 19, I'm going to start about verse 10. Again, Paul stayed in that school of Tyrannus teaching we talked about last time for about the space of two years, and this would be additional period of time. So that all they that dwelt in Asia, that province at least, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God even worked special miracles by the hands of Saul, or Paul rather. So that from his body were brought unto the sick just handkerchiefs or aprons or pieces of material. And the diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out of them. And so, obviously confirming the word he's preaching, and, you know, with, with great conviction. And then he began to receive opposition, verse 13. Certain of the vagabond Jews, it says here, who were exorcists, took upon them to call over them that had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, which is kind of funny. And seven sons of Sceva... Uh, who was a Jew, a chief of the priests, that he did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And so the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them. And if you can try to picture this, and I know it's very different from our time. We don't see this kind of thing. 
But if you can, aside from how comical it might look and so forth, and it is to a degree, but if you can think in terms of the great effort that's being put forth of teaching and how it's being confirmed, it's being backed up by these miracles and all of this kind of thing, it had a great effect. And how people are turning from not just what they believe, but really their way of life. Uh, Ephesus is a very idolatrous city. One of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple to Diana, a uh, Roman god in Ephesus. And it, uh, at its zenith, it housed a thousand priestesses who were prostitutes. And, you know, had the traffic has been estimated in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire flowing through there and, you know, all of that kind of thing going on. It's a way of life. And a person might look at all that and say, well, you know, it's kind of a sick way of life. It is. But suppose someone comes, in, in our day and time, comes from a very immoral life, you know, with not just all the partying, but the, you know, the, the sexual licentiousness and so forth that goes on, but comes from that and turns from all of that and turns to God. And if more people begin to do that, the effect you would have in the area would be one where certainly people are going to take notice. And if you're opposed to all of that, and we see later that a group of people were later in Acts 19, I'm not going to really look at all of that, that disturbance there, but they objected to it, and they wanted to stop it. They wanted to you know, basically kill the effort, and, and they're not successful. Because if you'll turn a page or so over to chapter 20, we learn, at least, that while Paul was at Ephesus, we don't know exactly, there's no way to know, but while Paul was at Ephesus, before this disturbance, which means they would have been newly installed, as we sometimes say, or newly appointed, uh, elders were put in that office, or after they go through that great disturbance, then elders still are appointed. But regardless, the church continues to grow. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 20. And this is where Paul meets um, the elders uh, from Ephesus. And he doesn't meet them in Ephesus. He, he meets them in Miletus. But if you'll drop down to, oh, about verse 20, and you'll notice as Paul meets with them, he says, and, and again, we're talking about the establishment of the church. We're talking about the teaching that went on. He said, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. But I've showed you, and I've taught you publicly and from house to house. And you can just imagine. I mean, again, picture a church. It's growing. More members are being added. Certainly Paul is standing up, much probably like I am. I don't know if they had a stage and they had a pulpit like this. It doesn't matter. But he's standing up and preaching. And he's preaching publicly. And then, and, and sometimes I think even more important, or at least certainly more beneficial to the individual, he's talking with people, studying with people. People are coming with questions. What about so-and-so? What about such-and-such? And maybe in private, relaxed settings, etc., from house to house, he's teaching, and they're growing, and he's talking about this doctrine or that doctrine, as we were saying this morning, this belief, that belief, and they're growing by that. So you see in verses 20 and 21, I didn't keep anything back from you. I taught you publicly. I taught you from house to house. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God. And when you read that, I don't know what you think of, but this is what I think of. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. It's not a one-time act when a person comes forward and sits on the bench and says, I want to be baptized. 
You know, they, they are intending to change their life. But repentance is a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It is a life of growing like we were talking about this morning. And when you come to understand something, you see something in the Bible, you say, boy, I see that. I know that. Or I hadn't seen that before. I hadn't thought about it that way before. I didn't understand that before, but now you do. So you change. And all through your life, that will be the process. As you come to understand things better, you add that to your life. Things that you're doing that are you, you come to understand are not right or not the best way for you to do, you stop. Things you haven't been doing, you start. And that's the life of a Christian. And that's what Paul is saying here. We were studying publicly. We were studying from house to house. And there was repentance toward God. Because that's what we preach. We preach change. Every time we open our mouths as preachers and teachers, and those of you that teach Bible classes, we're always talking about change. Change for the better. Change to do things as God wants them done. And faith. Toward, notice, the Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. They're growing there. And they're becoming well established. Drop down to verse 25. When he says, And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. So he knew, perhaps by inspiration, they weren't going to see him again. I think he intended to go into a different part of the world. And perhaps that's what he's saying here. But nonetheless. So he says, verse 26. Wherefore, that is why I take you to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. If you've never preached or taught, you perhaps can't understand how difficult that statement is. But I suspect that all of us have been in situations where we've had to stand for something, or say something, or been challenged about what we believe, and it hasn't been pleasant when we've done that. that. Someone has looked at us, if not as an oddball, then looked at us with outright contempt. But at the very least, knowing that you stand in opposition to perhaps the majority of people. Now, that's what Paul is saying here. I'm pure from the blood of all people. What does that mean? Well, I'm not guilty of having held the truth back because of the consequences. I didn't shun and that word there really has the idea of cowering. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't a coward. I preached the truth. I didn't shun from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. Now he warns them, verse 28. He says to those elders at Ephesus, You take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You take heed to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, he says. I know that after my departure will grievous wolves come in among you, not sparing the flock. And even of your own selves will men arise speaking perverse things. That is, things that are against the truth, is the idea. To draw away disciples after them. That's the way of a church. I want you to think about it for a moment, this church here. And some of you have been here a long time. And you've lived through times, you've seen the church, you've seen it go through, for example, a number of different preachers. You've had preachers that weren't here very long. And you've had preachers that were here a long time. And you've had members who have come and gone. And you've had some strong members. Members that have been very strong and instrumental in the growth of the church. And you've seen some of them die. And you've seen some of them become unfaithful. 
there have been scandals in this church. Some of you are very aware of scandals in the sense of members doing what they shouldn't do, and it's caused a great disturbance. There have been times when groups of people stood up in opposition to other groups. Maybe there was even a split. Maybe some members left, etc., etc. We as a church, and I say we because most of us weren't here for the great majority of that. But this church went through it, and that's the life of a congregation. When you're reading about these churches in the New Testament, you should understand it doesn't matter if they were started by an apostle or they were started by a small group of people as this church was all those years ago. It still is the Lord's church built by him, founded upon his principles, and it still is built, and when I say built, I mean built on, the way Paul would use the term in 1 Corinthians 3, by human beings. Whenever human beings are involved, trouble is what comes. And so, it's a warning here. When he's looking at the church at Ephesus, when he is speaking to them in Acts 20, they are anywhere from five to seven years, but probably closer to five years old. That's not long. And they are perhaps, you know, really strong. And they may even be, if they're human beings, feeling really, really good about themselves. Like, look what we've accomplished in a short amount of time. Look what we've done. Look where we are. And maybe as they look at themselves, and they're not stupid in those days, and there weren't, you know, there weren't televisions and, you know, cell phones and all of that, but they got the word from different people. You know, for example, Corinth, that was started before them, just before them, is only what would amount in our day a taxi ride, you know, not even a day's journey by water across from them. So here's what I'm saying in all of that. You think they're aware of all the trouble Corinth is having? They know people from Corinth. People from Corinth know them. You think that news in these two great metropolis cities of Empire Rome, that they don't know what's going on in each one? And that Christians don't know. Of course they know. What Paul is saying to these elders at Ephesus is, you know, you guys are doing great. But I want to warn you, when a church is doing great, it's when it needs to take heed. He might even have said here, though he doesn't, like I told the Corinthians, when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. It's a well-established church. It's a young church. Most of them are, you know. In some respects, all of them are in this day and time. But it's a strong church. And they've had some great advantages. And you know, Paul is telling the elders here, you're not going to see me again. And he's not going to go back to Ephesus. He's already said that. But to further establish the church there in Ephesus, Paul begins to send people that he has great confidence in. You know, I mean, preachers, teachers, that he knows will carry on the work. And there's a lot of instruction to them. And we see that. A lot of instruction about what they're to do and what they're to continue to do. Let's look at a couple of passages that show that. Look with me at 1 Timothy. Now, Kevin just read this passage for us, and I'm not going to reread all of it. But notice especially verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy 1. Now, let's put this in perspective. We were in Acts 20. Paul is talking to the elders there. He's telling them, you know, he's going to go on. He actually tells them, the Holy Spirit's been telling me through various prophets that I'm going to get chained up, and he did. 
And Paul will spend about four years in prison, and we all are, we're aware of that, we understand that. When Paul gets out of prison, Paul will begin to go into different areas and teach, and he won't revisit, as he did on those three missionary journeys, he won't revisit these areas again, but he will send people like Timothy. So, verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1. I besought you. Notice this. I, I begged you, the language would literally say. So we don't know what went on between them. Do you want to go? Do you not want to go? I'd rather go here. I'd rather be with you. We don't know. But I wanted you to remain at Ephesus. Now notice that. To abide still at Ephesus. When I went into Macedonia. There's a lot of conjecture about how long ago and how long Timothy's been there, even at this time. But regardless... When Paul went into what, you know, the area we would know as Philippi and Thessalonica and all that, he wanted Timothy to remain in Ephesus in Asia Minor and continue teaching. And why? Well, look at what Kevin read for us a little bit ago. That you might charge people not to teach another doctrine. This is something that is completely different from the truth. Now, this is Ephesus, man. This is School of Tyrannus. This is Elders. This is all of that advantage they've got, and yet there is this threat. And he's not saying that it's just a hypothetical threat. No, he's saying that there are people who are already involved in that. And so not to teach another doctrine, a different doctrine. Notice verse 4. And I'm not going to get off into the doctrines, because I am going to come back and talk a little bit about it in the last lesson next time. But this idea of fables are literally myths and endless genealogies. And we'll talk about the controversy surrounding, you know, who your mother was, your father was, and where you can trace it and all of that. But then also this idea of, if you'll notice as he goes further here in some of these verses, the uh, hypocritical faith in verse 5 that he mentions. Or at the end of verse 6, the vain jangling. That is things, I mean, something that is totally without profit, just useless, worthless, controversy, arguing, all of that kind of thing. Notice verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law and neither understanding what they're saying or whereof they affirm. Now this is people who adamantly are standing up and saying this is the way it ought to be. This is what is the truth. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. That's the way we'd say it today. You don't even know what you're talking about. But they are vehemently Defending that, affirming that, and that can be very destructive. I mean, the more forceful someone is, the more sure someone is, the more destructive that can be to a younger person's faith. So they're having to deal with all that. Let's look at another uh, situation, though. Timothy was there. Timothy can handle it. Timothy is a strong teacher. Paul urges him to remain so, but he's very strong. And it wasn't just Timothy. Go back with me to the book of Ephesians. While Paul was in prison for that four years, don't know exactly when during the time, but he wrote a letter, the book of Ephesians. And he may not be there personally, but he writes this letter to the Ephesians. And you'll notice the thing that, that strikes you about Ephesians, and, and I don't know if you think about this, this way about New Testament books, but you get some books like Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and it is filled with problems. You guys have got this problem. You Galatians have become a bunch of fools. You Corinthians are like little children. You're worldly-minded, etc. You don't see that in Ephesians. In fact, what you see in Ephesians 
is what you would expect the apostle to be writing to an exemplary church, strong church, and urging them to use where they are and how strong and well-established they are to use that to grow. You know, sometimes we think in terms of what a church, well, let me say it like this, a church that is in need is a church that's in shambles. That, you know, when, when doctrinally they're all messed up, when they're fighting, when they're, you know, they're dividing and all of that kind of thing. And we talk about, you know, that church needs, and it needs this and it needs that. Oftentimes we picture a strong church, a church that you take a look at and you say, you know, you guys do pretty good. I mean, really, you, you're not fighting. You have differences from time to time, but that's not serious. As long as everybody stays on the same page, like we were talking about this morning. But you're not, you're not falling apart. And you don't have a church filled with people who don't care. Any, I mean, they just really don't care. They're kind of there because it's the club they go to on Sunday, you know. But no, a church that's doing okay. And you would say, well, that church, you know, what kind of need do they have? They really don't have a lot of need. Oh, yes, they do. They have great need. It's interesting to me that when Paul writes these letters and the places that he sends his most trusted individuals are some of the strongest churches. And I believe that is because the Lord, and, and I, you know, whether you want to say needs or wants, but I think what is necessary in the kingdom is that there be strong churches. That there be churches that stand for the truth. Churches that you can point to and say, that's an example of what a church ought to be. You know, Thessalonica was like that. And so it's necessary for that to be the case. And so you get a book like, of Ephes- like Ephesians, where the Apostle Paul would say, stay the course, only just keep getting stronger. You know, solidify your faith. Be strong. Pull closer to Jesus Christ, who is, you know, we are the bride and he is the bridegroom. And then chapter 6, kind of echoing that warning that he gave to those elders maybe a couple of years before when he met them, but saying to put on the whole armor of God. You're going to need it. Because Satan doesn't worry about the churches that are falling apart. If he comes into the midst of a church of a hundred people and, you know, the great majority of them are just as immoral as anybody in the world, if doctrinally they don't stand for anything, if biblically they don't know anything and don't care to learn anything, he ain't worried about that church. He had it and he's got it from a long time ago. But if there is a church that's strong, if there is a church where people within it won't give an inch. And when I say that, I don't mean that they're just stubborn and bullheaded about their personal beliefs. But no, when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, they're not giving it up. And it doesn't matter what preacher comes along and says, do it different, believe it differently. And it doesn't matter what government law is passed that says you can't stand for this or you can't believe that any longer. No, they're going to stay true to Jesus Christ. That's the one Satan is going to do battle with. And so you get Ephesians 6, you know, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand and having done all to stand because you're going to need to stand. And what you're going to stand against are all the powers of Satan at his disposal to destroy it. So they're a well-established church. And if you'll notice down at the end of chapter 6, you see that there are other workers besides Timothy accomplishing this. If we look down at the very end, read with me verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs. Now remember, he's in prison. So how's Paul doing? You know, have you heard from Paul lately? That's the kind of thing we would say. It's what they would say. 
And he says, and how I do. You know, how is Paul? Been in prison several years now. How's he doing? That's what we would say. Well, so that you can know how I'm doing. I sent Tychicus. And Tychicus is a beloved brother, notice that, and faithful minister, our faithful servant in the Lord, and he will make known to you all things. Again, think about what he's saying there. You're a very strong church. You're a very well-established church. You've got elders. You're a church that has, you know, seemingly, as far as the world would be concerned, you've got everything you need. And Timothy is there. And so now, Paul is sending this letter, and he's sending this additional teacher who's going to make known to them all things. I'm going to tell you, two things are necessary if you can make that kind of statement. One is that you don't know everything, and you are humble enough to admit that. You know, you can get to a point where, where as a teacher, a preacher, a member, you know, you've been at it for a long time, you get very arrogant. I know everything. I know what's in the Bible. You know, I've been studying this Bible for nearly 40 years. And you can get very arrogant about that and think, really, nobody's got anything to say to you. Well, when you get to that point, you're dead already. You know, you just, you're not growing. And a church can get to that point where no one really can tell them anything because after all, they say, look around you. You know a church stronger than this? Better than this? Greater than this? He'll make known to you all things. It takes a certain type teacher to come into a group who knows a lot, well-advantaged group, and tell them what they need to hear. And it takes a certain kind of audience to listen to that. And those are the two things necessary to make a statement like that, or at least make it in a viable sense. Notice as he goes on in verse 22, I've sent him, I've sent Tychicus unto you for the same purpose that you might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Now, there's an indication there to me, and you can take this with a grain of salt, and I encourage you to do so. But when you begin to dig into what's going on in Ephesus, as strong as they are, that prophecy of Paul's in Acts 20 rings in my ears. And so here would be the point of a church that maybe isn't aware of the dangers that can befall not the weak, but the strong. I would refer you back to a lesson West preached last year, a very good lesson, of threats and dangers to the weak, to the spirit I mean to the strong, to the spiritually strong individual. And so Paul is saying that to the people in Ephesus. Now you got Paul, and you had Apollos, and you had Aquila and Priscilla, and now you got a second generation of Timothy, and at least of Tychicus. And some indications, biblically, and certainly more outside of the Bible, was that the Apostle John went there for, at least in that area, for quite a while, and spent a number of years there. That there were other people, Onesimus, for example, the book of Philemon, the runaway slave that's converted... You know, that was Colossae, that is really a sister city to Ephesus. And extra-biblical material would show him going back to that area. And after Timothy, basically being the preacher there for a long time, maybe on the order of 30 years before he himself was martyred. Now, for all of that is just possibility. But understand, you've got a great list there 
of well-known individuals, strong individuals, etc. And you've got this book of Ephesians that basically is encouraging them to take advantage of all of this and grow and be everything they need to, to, to do. Everything they need to grow and be to do that. Now, why do I emphasize all of that? And you're probably thinking to yourself, the reason you're saying all of that is because they didn't do that. And you'd be right. And when we look at the middle years, as I like to call them, of the church, and most of these middle years are not what the Bible really talks about. It indicates it, but it doesn't really talk about everything that was going on. But there's enough indication and something that's kind of given as a postscript in the Bible about Ephesus that lets you know they didn't take heed to all of that. And that what happened to this church is... Rather than using all the strength they had, the, the great point they are at, I know that's not grammatically correct, but it makes the point, the great point at which they, they come, by the time Paul writes Ephesians, or certainly by the time that he sends men like Timothy and Tychicus to them, they didn't take advantage of that. And rather than grow like they needed to grow and be maybe that leading church, and I would suspect that many people probably thought everything that was happening in Ephesus, given the city and its importance, given the people and how wealthy they were and prominent they were in the Roman Empire, and on and on and on we could cite, that there were many people who thought, you know, the leading church is going to be Ephesus. I mean, we had to pick one church that's going to be more influential than any other in perhaps all this part of the world. It's going to be Ephesus. I mean, they just have all the advantages. They have everything that you seem to need to be that influential, exemplary church. And they weren't. And that's what you have to understand. When they hit their middle years, they faced their doctrinal problems. For all the strength and the knowledge and the education and everything they have, they don't use it to pull together, to teach each other the truth, to arrive at a strength biblically and doctrinally that can't be penetrated. They don't reach that. They rather have people going like this in every direction. And so when you reach the middle years, you look at a church that rather with its strength is influential and teaching everybody around them and influencing everybody around them like they were with the school of Tyrannus situation. They are a church that is buying into every false doctrine and literally they are having to fight it at every turn. And the Bible would tell us that. So they fought doctrinal battles. And they fought strong doctrinal battles. Again, I refer you back to 1 Timothy 1 and those things that Paul is saying. He is not saying them just to be saying, you know, in a realm of possibilities, this could happen. Like I could come in here tonight and I could say, you know, in a realm of possibilities, I could go off the deep end and I could stop preaching baptism. Is it possible? I don't think it's going to happen and I doubt very seriously you believe it's going to happen. But he's not talking about it like that. He's talking about it, and if you read those verses, he's saying, Timothy, charge these people to not do this. I don't walk up to someone and charge them and tell them to their face to stop doing something when they ain't doing it. Now, they've got these problems. And different doctrines, different false doctrines, some of which we'll talk about next time, are creeping in there 
And men like Timothy and Tychicus are having to spend their time with that. And you know, it takes a lot of time. And for every question that arises that really shouldn't have, for every person that goes off the deep end, for every person that messes themselves up morally, and on and on and on it goes, it takes time. And you can become so consumed with people's problems, whether they're doctrinal or moral or both, a church can become so consumed. The leadership, the eldership of a church can become so consumed. The preachers can become so consumed that nothing gets done. You might say, oh, well, the battles that need to be fought are fought. They are. And when you're fighting a, a battle and you're having to run from that battle to the next two and fight that, in the overall sense, the best you are doing is getting back to where you were before there was a problem. And you're not getting anywhere. And that's Ephesus. And so with all of the advantages they had, with all the well-grounded strength they had, that's what they did. And so this will go on. And it will go on for about 30 years, to the best of anybody's estimation, before it blows up. And then it will be a war that is fought, at least from what we can understand. And then after that, you would think, okay, finally, then it will really fall apart. And it will become not the influential church of the day, but it will become an influential church for the other side. And that's where we'll leave it, and that's where we'll pick up next time. So we leave the church in the mid-60s. Mid to late 60s. Paul will die. There won't be an apostle, a father figure, to appeal to anymore. They're strong still in the 60s. They're well-grounded. They're well-established. But I've already said to you, they don't take advantage of that. They're doctrinally sound. And they will remain doctrinally sound for some time to come. But I want you to hear this. Because this is where we'll come back to. They will remain doctrinally sound at a great cost. And I'll just let you ponder that before we come back to the next lesson. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. And you listen to a lesson like this and you say, well, that's not very encouraging. But you know what it is? is it's people. Those Ephesians had the same choice that you had. And that I had. And that is to take what you know. And maybe you, you are like I was nearly 40 years ago. And you don't know much. But someone has pointed out a few passages to you. And you look at it and you say, I do believe in Jesus. And I see that I, I need to be baptized for forgiveness of my sins. That's what it says. And that's what he, Jesus says and that's what I need to do. Maybe you want to do that tonight. Maybe it is that you look at your life, you look at yourself and you say... I've been baptized, but there are things in my life that need to be straightened out. They need to be corrected. I need to turn those things around so that I'm not one of those people like you were talking about in Ephesus so long ago. And I'm not one of those people at East Orange. Always with a problem. Always, you know, always someone that just can't turn things around. Or maybe I should say who won't turn things around. 
Tonight I'm going to stand up for the Lord. I'm going to say things are going to be different. Tonight I ask for your prayers because I want to be strong. I want to be the person that is a great influence for Jesus Christ. I want to be the light in my corner of the world. I want to be the kind of person that helps this church, helps my family, helps even our nation to be what it needs to be. That starts with really a single step. You deciding to step up, step forward, be with you. Please come. I'll just stand and sing.